So we have a happy Father's Day message, 2015. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We, Father, ask that you would speak to us. We pray that you would clearly communicate, Lord, your heart and your will for our lives uh, during this time. I pray, Father, that you would um, just open up our eyes, open up our ears to what you have to say to us this morning as we open up the love letter and have this opportunity to uh, just learn from you, Lord. So bless our time together as we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, so my wife and I were saved in a little church in Wilmington, California back in 1987. And we would have special guest speakers come in sometimes and they would share um, on subjects uh, of things that they were going through in their life. And I remember sometimes the things that they shared had nothing to do with the Bible. And I hated it. Uh, I hated it because I didn't come to hear about your vacation to the Bahamas. <laughs> I'm glad that you went to the Bahamas. I'm glad that you had a good time. But to sit there and talk to a church for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour uh, about something that has nothing to do with me and me being able to grow in the Lord and the things of the Lord um, really isn't why I came to church. I came to church to hear from the Word of God. I came to church to be able to hear uh, from the pages of his love letter, his scriptures, right? And so Father's Day um, is a difficult time because not everybody in the church is a father, right? But at the same time, it's a very important day. It's a day that we can see what the scriptures have to say about fathers and fatherhood and uh, whether we... Are, are a father, we all had a father at some point, and so um, I, I think it is important to hit these topics and to talk about them. I think there are oftentimes two extremes that we find, either one is indifference, we don't want to talk about the subject, or two, we want to go to this extreme of beating fathers because we feel that maybe they're not doing the best job they could, or a poor job in society and in culture. Um, so when I put a Bible study together, I want to take into consideration the nature of the day and what we are going to be learning um, as it relates to that specific thing, like Mother's Day or um, you know Thanksgiving or those types of things. But at the same time, I want to have the whole congregation be able to receive something, that everybody who's here and assembled can learn something. And so I, I believe that that's what we put together for you today in this Father's Day message. That God differentiates between men and women is clear in the scriptures. Fathers are not moms. They're not women. Fathers are men. And we have to understand that God differentiates between men and women. He differentiates how he speaks to men as opposed to how he speaks to women. In Job chapter 38 verse 3 the Bible says, now prepare yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. God is telling Job, man up, prepare yourself like a man because I'm not going to talk to you soft right now. I'm not going to talk to you gently right now. I'm coming at you, Job, like a man and I want you to understand that I'm going to come at you hard. And I like that because men are supposed to man up, if you will. And so there's nothing wrong with that. We've come to a time where, as Christians, we believe that we're living in the last days. We believe that we're living 
where the rapture of the church is soon to take place and the tribulation period is going to be ushered in. And so living in the last days, the Bible tells us what men toward their children is going to look like and what children toward their um, fathers is going to look like. Find this interesting in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So hopefully you caught that. God is saying before that dreadful day when my judgment is poured out upon the world, which we refer to in the Bible as the great tribulation, he is saying that he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That would have to mean what? That before Jesus comes, hearts of fathers won't be towards their children and hearts of the children won't be toward their fathers. And if we look at society and culture today, we can see that that has taken place. That is taking place right now. That doesn't mean that every father or every child is not turned toward their father, but we can definitely see in general. In preparation for this message and this week, I just, I don't know if you guys use Google. I love Google. I call it Goggle because it's, it's, my, it's my little friend, Goggle. And I just, man, you ask Google the right question and you can get some good stuff. There's definitely some scary stuff and there's some stuff to navigate through as you search the World Wide Web, but you get thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of articles on a topic if you ask Google the right question. And so I read article after article on what is a man, what is a real man, what is a good father, what does a father look like? Um, and then I was just caught sociologically. We have this thing taking place within our culture called the feminization of the man, the feminizing of males. Women are taking, through feminism, women are taking prominent positions in our culture, and we have women who are influential who are wanting, to be, wanting men to be more like women. And we see it taking place all over. And so we see soft men. We see men that are basically just told to act more like a woman. And as I look at that and as I study this, I find it interesting. I like sociology and I like studying societies and culture and different things like that. But what is God's heart on all this? And what is God's perspective on this? Because we have a lot of voices telling us how to act and what to do. And many of them are well-meaning. Many of them even have good things to say about these things. But when it's all said and done, if you look at our culture right now, our society is elevating as a hero, Bruce Jenner, a man who has transformed himself through surgery and um, counseling and just all kinds of things into a woman and he is elevated as a hero by the masses. Popular culture is elevating that and saying that what he has done is heroic and then I think to myself, okay, the culture sees that as that. What does God see that as? 
And I think we as Christians even need to be careful with that because we would want to bash that or look down upon it, but is God looking down upon it and bashing it? I think God's heart is entirely different and he's compassionate and loving even towards that situation. It's not really an issue of God's bashing him or slamming him. God's heart is he loves him and he knows that he's confused and he would love to be able to minister to the heart of his issue, the issue of his heart. But the culture elevating it and, and, and holding it up as heroic, I don't think that's God's perspective or God's heart either. And so with all of these voices and all of these articles, I read the top three reasons and then the top five reasons and then another article with the top 10 reasons of what makes a man and and what makes a, a good father. And then I read the top 20. And so I read article after article and a lot of them had good things to say. And a lot of them, I look at them and I was like, wow, okay, these are some some good values. These, these, These would be helpful for anybody to maybe take into consideration. But Again, what is God's perspective on this whole thing? And regardless of what people say or what people think, or, or the masses, one with God is a majority. Me and God are on the winning team. If I'm on God's team, regardless of the whole 7.1 billion people on the earth, and if they're all against me, but I'm standing on the side of God, I'm the winner. Woo! Because God's all-powerful, all-knowing. He has all wisdom. And so whatever we do and however we define these things and identify these, these ideas and these terms, we've got to see what God's perspective is and what he thinks about these things. There are just a few handful of scriptures that relate to fathers and fatherhood in the Bible. Let me read those to you. And then I'm going to give you the foundational truth that everybody can apply to their lives, whether you're a father or not. But these are the very few scriptures that relate to fathers or fatherhood in the scriptures. Number one, Ephesians 6, 4. The Bible says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so number one, Ephesians 6, 4. Don't provoke your kids Bring them up training and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And of course, to be able to do that, we need to be connected to them. We need to be able to spend time with them. Even if it's a distant relationship, that whatever amount of time, whether it's through letters, through telephone conversations, through face-to-face meetings, whenever we spend time with them, there needs to be some training and admonition in the Lord. And we need to be able to get that from the Lord, okay? Colossians 3.21, the sister scripture of Ephesians 6.4, says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so don't be overbearing, provoking them, because that's gonna discourage them. On the way up here, I was listening to Dave Rolfe's message on Father's Day, and he used um, Romans chapter eight, verse one was the first point that he made in his sermon, and Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there's no, no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation as a father that we wouldn't raise our children through guilt. Having them feel, guilt is a good motivator. And parents can guilt their kids into doing stuff or not doing stuff. 
But the, the Lord doesn't condemn us. And as the perfect Heavenly Father, that we would be careful not to use guilt as a motivator, but love. And, and, and then that's what he was sharing within his message. In Proverbs chapter 13, 24, we see something that is lost in this culture. Uh, the Bible says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And chastening, correcting, disciplining, and discipline comes from the root word disciple. It's, it's a teacher. You're, you're teaching your children through discipline. It's, not, it's just not corporal punishment. It's not just spanking your kids, but it's teaching. It's discipling, teaching them in that sense. Hebrews chapter 12 expands this idea of, of discipline. It says in verse 7 through 11, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the idea of chastening or disciplining or um, corporal punishment um, is something that fathers should understand that God has given them that uh, responsibility in raising their children this idea of, and I don't know where it came from, of counting for your kids, I guess it can be helpful, right? One, two, don't, don't let me get to three, two and a half, two and three quarters. I'm getting close to three. If I get to three, then, then what? It's like, what? One should have been enough. Um, or 10 backwards, 10, 9, 8, seven. all right, mom and dad know how to count backwards. I mean, you know, again, where that came from in our, in our society and in our culture, I don't know. Um, I've seen it be useful, but I think at least say what you mean and mean what you say in the sense of what your expectations are. They need to be clearly defined as it relates to um, disciplining your children But discipline is just something altogether almost lost in our culture, isn't it? And you see it. All you got to do is just go to a store, go to Target, go to Kmart. You watch it well, not taking place. Um, I grew up uh, where the other extreme was the case. You know, I was beat. Uh, You know, switches and hangers and extension cords were the norm for us being spanked. Uh, That's not a spanking, Mom. That's a beating. I got welts all up on my leg. You know, no. And so, obviously, we don't want the pendulum to swing to either one of those extremes. Discipline is something that God expects a father to be able to hand down to his children. And discipline is to be something in love. And it's discipling. It's teaching. There's teachable moments within that. And so, a spanking can go a long way. But again, if you look at Proverbs, that scripture is just crazy. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son. That's a powerful scripture, is it not? But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And so, very important that we understand that. Those are the scriptures that talk about fatherhood within the scriptures that relate directly to fathers. So again, as I was just praying this week and thinking about things, I I, I came up with three of my own, three uh, 
my top three to fathers. Number one would be tapped into the source for without God we can do nothing. You, you could be the best dad that you can be, but if you're not tapped into the source, you don't have all knowledge. You don't have all wisdom. You don't have all understanding, but God does. And if you truly want to be influential in your child's life that is longer than just for the temporal life that is on earth, but something that is taking into eternity, then you have to be tapped into the source of eternity, God himself. So that was just something that I kind of came up with as a number one. Number two, stay connected to the mother of your children. If married to her, that is to be the single most important relationship that you pour into on earth. If no longer together, maintain a cordial relationship that honors God. She is probably the single most influential person in your child's life next to you. And so I think it's a good idea to stay connected to the mother. And if you're married, definitely model for that child, for those children, This is the single most important relationship that I have on earth. And so this relationship will will last longer uh, in in connectivity than our relationship because at some point you'll probably be moving on and starting your own family. So I want to make sure that I model for you a, a healthy relationship, a married relationship, again, if we're still married. And then number three, introduce your child to Christ through a loving relationship with your creator, staying connected to his or her mother and providing loving discipline. You are not to be your child's friend, you are to be their father. And so ultimately the goal of children, according to Malachi chapter three is, God wants them back. We wanna introduce them to eternity. Some way, somehow, no matter where they're at, no matter where we're at, we wanna be able to say, hey God, this is what you gave me, I'm just giving it right back to you. And that's what Malachi says um, the purpose of marriage and children was. One of, I guess, marriage. So now, again, just as I'm looking at this topic, I'm thinking about it, these are the ideas and the things that I had looked at, but no matter what you come up with, no matter what you think is important, no matter what articles you might read, for all of us, God has a foundation for how we should be doing everything that we do. Not just fathering or mothering or being involved in a relationship under a roof, but every single thing we do should have a foundation. And this foundation is found in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so that's what I want to look at, and that's what we're going to close with ultimately. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13 starts out in its first three verses, reading like something that is hyperbole. It sounds like extreme language, but it is very clear and very concise as it relates to this thing called love. Now, unfortunately, we have a mixed understanding of what love is because we have several definitions of love. We have romantic or erotic love, eros in the Greek. Um, We have friendship, love, phileo in the Greek, 
Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. We have um, an affectionate kind of love, like the love that you can have with a pet or an animal, and that's storgi. But none of those are what God is speaking of in the ultimate sense of the word love that he's defining for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That word would be agape or agapeo in the Greek. And that is unconditional love, love with no conditions. And this is the love that God calls all of us to. And the foundation of his children, he says again in John 13, the single identifying mark that he is saying so that we don't get it mixed up, so that we don't get it confused, so that we don't hear all of these voices that are coming in and all of these opinions that are bombarding us and confusing us at times. He's saying, why don't you have as the foundation of everything that you do at least this one thing, build your house on this thing, Establish your attitude, your actions, your thoughts, your words on this one singular thing. That way, you're not hearing all these dissenting voices, all these confusion, confusing uh, opinions. Just, just get the one thing foundational down of this love and then let everything be a stepping stone from there. Everything can be a springboard where you can jump off from there. Get this one thing down and understand it, and then everything can flow from that one thing. And I like that about God because we're simple, right? We're not, we're not that complicated. We're not that savvy. Lord, can you, whoa, I'm confused. Can you make it easy for me? I'll make it easy for you. I'll give you one thing. Make sure that everything that you do comes from the perspective of this one thing, love, my love, that I want to pour in you and through you. This is how I love you, and this is how I want you to love. If you start in 1 Corinthians 13, notice verse 1. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. As I mentioned, it sounds hyperbolic. It sounds hyperbole. It sounds like God is exaggerating. It sounds like the scriptures are going so far away from what really can be true. Wait, wait, wait. If I have an eloquence in my speech, if I have angelic language that flows out of my mouth, but I don't love, then it sounds like a gong. It sounds like a cymbal. It sounds like a dead sound. Wow. That's, some, that, that's got my attention at least. Verse 2 says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so again, God is elevating this thing, love, to a very high proportion. He's making it singular. He's saying this is something that you want to have as a foundation. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not loved, it profits me nothing. And so the greatest sacrifice that we can make without love becomes nothing. It, it, we don't get credited for it. It, it. it accounts to nothing. The value of it means nothing. 
And so I think that's very important for us to get as the foundation of what we do, this thing called love. Then he defines it. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. And so he defines it for us. And generally speaking, we understand that Jesus is God's expression of love to us. And Jesus fulfills these things perfectly. But I found a definition as it relates to how we can love in this manner. And I want to read you these one by one. Hopefully we'll have them up here so that you can see them. But number one, love is patient. And that is defined as practically living it out in your life, even when you feel like forcefully expressing yourself. Love bears pain or trials without complaint, shows forbearance under provocation or strain, and is steadfast despite opposition, difficulty, or adversity. That's the definition of this patient love lived out in your life and in my life. Love is kind. Even when you want to retaliate physically or tear down another with your words, Love is sympathetic, considerate, gentle, and agreeable. Next, love is not jealous, especially when you are aware that others are being noticed more than you. Love does not participate in rivalry, is not hostile toward one believed to enjoy an advantage, and is not suspicious. Love works for the welfare and good of the other. Next, love does not brag. Even when you want to tell the world about your accomplishments, love does not flaunt itself boastfully and does not engage in self-glorification. Instead, love lifts, builds up others. Next, love is not arrogant. Even when you think you are right and others are wrong, love does not assert itself or become overbearing in dealing with others. Next, love does not act unbecomingly. Even when being boastful, rude, or overbearing will get you attention and allow you to get your own way, love conforms to what is right, fitting, and appropriate to the situation to honor the Lord. Next, love does not seek its own. Even when you feel like grabbing it all or have an opportunity to do so, Love does not try to fulfill its own desires, does not ask for its own way, and does not try to acquire gain for itself. Love, as an act of the will, seeks to serve and not to be served. Love is not provoked. Even when others attempt to provoke you, or you are tempted to strike out at something or someone, love is not aroused or incited to outbursts of anger. Love continues faithfully and gently to train others in righteousness, even when they fail. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Even when everyone seems to be against you or when people openly attack you, love does not hold a grudge against someone. Love forgives, chooses not to bring up past wrongs in accusation or retaliation, does not return evil for evil, 
and does not indulge in self-pity. Love covers a multitude of sins. Next, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Even when it seems like a misfortune was exactly what another person deserved. Love mourns over sin, its effects, and the pain which results from living in a fallen world. Love seeks to reconcile others with the Lord. Next, love rejoices with the truth. Even when it is easier and more profitable materially to lie, love is joyful when truth is unknown, even when, may, when it may lead to adverse circumstances, reviling or persecution. Love bears all things. Even when disappointments seem overwhelming, love is intolerant, endures with others who are difficult to understand or deal with, and has an eternal perspective in difficulties. Love remembers that God develops spiritual maturity through difficult circumstances. Love believes all things, even when others' actions are ambiguous and you feel like not trusting anyone. Love accepts trustfully, does not judge people's motives, and believes others until facts prove otherwise. Even when facts prove that the other person is untrustworthy, love seeks to help restore the other to trustworthiness. Love hopes all things. Even when nothing appears to be going right, love accepts fulfillment of God's plan and anticipates the best for, other, for the other person. Love confidently entrusts others to the Lord to do his sovereign and perfect will in their lives. Two more. Love endures all things, especially when you think you just can't endure the people or circumstances in your life. Love remains steadfast under suffering or hardship without yielding and returns a blessing while undergoing trials. And finally, love never fails, even when you feel overwhelmed and the situation seems hopeless. Love will not crumble under pressure or difficulties. Love remains selflessly faithful, even to the point of death. When we take a look at the practical application of what love is, of course, all of us fall short of this standard. This standard is a high standard, but this is what God is working in us. This is the way that God wants us behaving towards people and towards the circumstances of our life. And so if this isn't taking place, then we have to ask ourselves, why isn't it taking place? Because this is what God desires to be working in the depth of us from the inside out to be able to reflect his love through us to a world that needs love. And so as we look at fathers and fatherhood, we definitely want to be loving in this way, in this manner, to be able to pour in them. And and again, there's just so many things that are vying for competition But if we're going to get one thing or if we're going to figure out one thing or if we're going to have a foundation of understanding of where we start, may we start at the point of love and then let everything take off from there. And so whether we're relating as fathers or whether we're just church members and we're just trying to live this thing called life, then this is the foundation, I believe, of what we need to have. I love Psalm 68 verse 5 to those who maybe didn't have the best of fathers. The Bible says that God is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, 
is God in his holy habitation. And so even to us who maybe didn't have the best of examples, God is our father and he's our example. And he's not our example for nothing. He's our example so that we can receive, but so that we can give as well. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you are our Father through relationship, through the death of the cross, Lord, we have access to this relationship with you. And Lord, we can walk and talk with you. We can learn of you. We can uh, just learn how you love us and then in turn love those who you have put in front of us in that manner as well. So we thank you, Father, for your love. We thank you that we can call you Abba, Daddy. We thank you, Lord, that when we hurt, we can turn to you and trust in you. Lord, when we need wisdom, when we need knowledge, we can look to you because you are all-knowing, Lord. You have all wisdom. You know how to apply the knowledge that you give us. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that you've not left us without instructions, and I thank you, Lord, that you desire to infuse that wisdom to us. And so, Lord, I thank you for the fathers that are represented here. I thank you, Father, for the relationships that uh, people can have with their fathers and that they would reach out and just love um, those who you have given them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.